from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. This is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. Last week, we spoke with Rebecca Spang about the origins of the restaurant. This week, we revisit a conversation about the possible origins of a favorite beverage, coffee. And these goats go and they see a coffee shrub and they start eating the beans from the coffee shrub. And then they get super excited. And Kaldi is like, well, what is going on here? Stay with us for a conversation with religious studies scholar Jamel Velji, discussing the Islamic origins of coffee and representations of the Islamic world in coffee marketing, past and present. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. We'll start today's show with Renee Reed, who has some food and farming updates for us from Harvest Public Media. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Farmers across the Midwest appear on track for record high harvests despite a year of extreme weather. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports. In August, one of Randy Auberly's fields of corn and soybeans near Gibson City, Illinois, got nine inches of rain. We had some areas in those fields that the water was four feet deep. But he says the rain drained out quickly. And while his corn crop may have taken a bit of a hit this year, soybeans? Beans are turning out really well. For what we're seeing, it's probably some of the best yields we've ever seen on beans. Intense rainstorms are becoming more common due to climate change. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Federal SNAP benefits, once known as food stamps, do twice as much good for rural communities as urban areas. A new report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture looked at the economic impact and jobs created by the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Don Fogarty is the director of the Missouri Community Action Network and advocates for programs to end poverty. She says the report shows that rural residents benefit the most from the program. The typical SNAP recipient is somebody in a rural community who's often pretty isolated and and lacks transportation to be able to buy food from affordable grocers. Fogarty says she hopes the report will push lawmakers to devote more tax money to food assistance. The U.S. Department of Agriculture wants more information about the growing hemp industry. As Brian Grimmett of Harvest Public Media reports, it shows that hemp is becoming a legitimate crop to government regulators. For the first time ever, the National Agricultural Statistics Service has sent hemp farmers across the country an acreage and production survey. About 20,000 farmers in the U.S. will receive the survey. It will ask farmers about a variety of topics, including acres planted, whether it was grown for flour or fiber, yield, and value. Farmers of other crops and livestock have been providing this kind of information for decades. USDA officials say the results of the survey will help producers, growers, and regulators better understand how the market for hemp is developing. A state-by-state breakdown of the results will be released in February. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Brian Grimmett. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin, Jonathan All, and Brian Grimmett for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. Thank you.
Americans eat more than seven and a half million pounds of chestnuts every year. Most are imported from Italy, China, and Korea. Yet they could easily be grown in the Midwest. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports chestnuts are a growth industry in the region and offer an option for small-scale, low-effort, and importantly, profitable ways to farm. Bill Stouffer is driving around his farm near Tipton in central Missouri. He spent decades growing corn and soybeans here. About 10 years ago, he wanted to find a way to make his farm smaller and still profitable, so he could leave his kids some of the land that had been in his family for more than 200 years. And for it not to be a burden for them. And we, so we were looking for a crop that would give high yield per acre uh, and let them make a choice whether they want to manage it or they want to hire management done but have, have the farm be able to support itself and, be, and continue in the family for uh, years to come. So Stouffer planted 20 acres of chestnut trees in 2009. About three years later, the nuts started to come. Chestnuts grow in spiky burrs and open up in mid-September, dropping the nuts on the ground. Stouffer says when that starts happening, it's a quick turnaround to get them to customers. Generally speaking, they start dropping nuts on the 20th. And uh, so we opened up our website on the 22nd. In, in four, five hours, we, we had over 100 orders. Uh, I mean, there's tremendous demand for chestnuts. Stouffer's family and a few hired high school students can harvest the chestnuts using little wire cages on the end of a stick. The nuts don't require a lot of processing. The Stouffer's can clean, sort, and package the chestnuts in a couple rooms in their barn. The family set up an online store where the nuts go for about $6 a pound and sell out every year. That demand is drawing more people to chestnut farming. The USDA says the number of chestnut farms in the U.S. increased from 591 in 2012 to 841 in 2017. Mike Gold is with the University of Missouri's Center for Agroforestry. Even with a three to five year period waiting for new trees to produce nuts, he says chestnut demand is high enough to accommodate more farmers. We also do market surveys of the membership, and we find that prices are very high, demands exceeding supply. Everybody sells out within a couple of weeks. So all needles are pointing in the right direction. The Chestnut Growers of America says the U.S. has 2,500 acres of chestnut farms. It would take more than 10,000 acres just to make up for what's imported every year. Gold says chestnuts also benefit small farmers because of the boutique nature of the crop the preference for buy local is powerful. So somebody would much prefer to buy a Missouri chestnut if they're from Missouri than, say, a California chestnut and very much more than a, a European or Asian one. Also, our quality is better because they don't, they don't lose any quality in shipping. And there may be room for even more demand. Chestnuts are literally roasting on an open fire at the Missouri Chestnut Roast Festival at the University of Missouri Research Farm in New Franklin. Hundreds of people came out to taste chestnuts and get recipes. Daniel Blake and Elizabeth DeMeyer tasted different breeds of chestnuts for market research. For both of them, it was their first bite. It's hard to compare them to like anything else, really. Like, I don't think I've ever tasted anything like that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're sweet. The, the texture sort of threw me off because I didn't know what to expect, but yeah. they're good. Yeah. I like them. Promoters hope people will like the flavor so much they will eat them roasted or in recipes like chestnut dressing, 
hummus, and even chili. Chestnut farming doesn't require expensive equipment like combines and can be profitable on a lot less than the thousands of acres needed to make money on row crops like corn and soybeans. Greg Heindelsman is a chestnut farmer in Lewiston, Missouri. He says they offer a living on as little as five acres, compared to a row crop farm that would require hundreds, if not thousands, of acres to support a family. If you only have a thousand pounds an acre, the figures are right around six thousand dollars an acre. Now, granted, all of that isn't profit. You've got some establishment costs and some maintenance as it goes along, but that's still a whole lot better than I can do in grain. <laughs> and Heindelsman says his chestnuts are doing so well, he is planning to take more acres out of corn production next year and plant more chestnut trees. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a reporter collective covering food and farming in the heartland. Learn more at harvestpublicmedia.org. In an upcoming episode of Earth Eats, we'll be visiting with researchers here at Indiana University talking about the history of chestnuts and future possibilities for nut crops in the Midwest. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. After a short break, we'll hear stories about the surprising Islamic origins of coffee. Stay with us. Make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast. It's the same great stories in your podcast feed. Just search for Earth Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. We love to hear from you, and it helps other people find us. I'm Jamel Velji, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College in California. Jamel Velji visited the IU campus in November of 2018. He gave a talk called Drinking the Orient, Meditations on Religion and Coffee from the Yemen to San Francisco. Dr. Velji's work is situated at the intersection between Islamic studies and religious studies. He's the author of an apocalyptic history of the early Fatimid Empire, and he describes himself as someone who is obsessed with the apocalypse. I wanted to know how he got into the study of the Islamic origins of coffee. When we teach Islam, intro classes to the study of Islam, which is kind of my bread and butter, we have to spend about 25% of our time undoing these negative perceptions about Muslims, perceptions about Muslims being terrorists, perceptions about Muslims being overtly sexual, about Muslim women being veiled and needing to be liberated. So we spend so much time undoing these perceptions. And 
I was thinking, well, how is it that we can actually get to what Islam is and look at this kind of dynamism about Islamic history, how Muslims live their lives, the vast diversity of 1.6 billion Muslims who inhabit the planet? How do we even begin to study this? There are many of us in Islamic studies and religious studies who are kind of rethinking Islamic studies from the ground up. And when I was doing my first book on the apocalypse and drinking way too much coffee, I was also reading about the history of coffee and thinking, wow, you know, there's so much work to be done in thinking about not just the legacy of coffee, this Islamic legacy of coffee, but looking at the ways in which coffee and Muslims have been tethered through uh, throughout history, really. In thinking about these new ideas about how do we do Islam, um, one of my colleagues at Brown, Shazad Bashir, has written about how is it that Islamic studies, even the fundamental books that we learn about, actually tether Islamic history to a Western historical timeline that kind of reinscribes this idea of Islamic decline and then European ascendancy and then having things geographically outside of the Middle East becoming totally derivative or kind of weird with relation to what is, quote, central. So, yeah, and I thought that as I was staring at my cup of coffee, that this could provide a really interesting way of in kind of infusing the study of Islam with a new kind of dynamism that doesn't separate Muslims and non-Muslims in this kind of artificial way that we seem to experience today. And also that we should, I think, be more connected to the people who actually grow and harvest our coffee. Americans spend something like $5.1 billion on coffee every year. And we should be connected to those people. For those of us who aren't familiar with the origins of coffee in yeah. the Islamic world, can you talk about that? Sure. One of the great things I discovered about studying coffee is how many origin myths, how many legends there are <laughs> about coffee. There are two major origin myths that are ascribed to coffee. One is this idea about Sufi sheikhs. So we have the the first complete text on coffee is by this guy named Al-Jaziri. And Al-Jaziri writes in the 16th century. And he draws a lot of his history from this guy named Abdul Jafar. And there is a great translation about this origin myth from this person who's written this fabulous book on coffee called Ralph Haddock's. And this is what this text says. Okay. At the beginning of this, the 16th century, the news reached us in Egypt that a drink called kahwa had spread in the Yemen and was being used by Sufi sheikhs and others to help them stay awake during their devotional exercises, which they perform according to their well-known way. Then it reached us some time later that its appearance and spread there had been due to the efforts of the learned sheikh, Imam Mufti and Sufi Jamal al-Din Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Said, known as al-Dabani. 
We heard that he had been in charge of the critical reviews of fatwas in Aden, which at that time was a job whose holder decided whether fatwas were sound or in need of revision, which he would indicate at the bottom of the document with his own hand. The reason for his introduction of coffee, according to what we had heard, was that some affair had forced him to leave Aden and go to Ethiopia, where he stayed for some time. There he found the people using kahwa, though he knew nothing of its characteristics. After he had found that among its properties was that it drove away fatigue and lethargy and brought to the body a certain sprightliness and vigor. In consequence, when he became a Sufi, he and other Sufis in Aden began to use the beverage made from it, as we have said. Then the whole people, the learned and the common, followed his example in drinking it, seeking help in study and other vocations and crafts, so it continued to spread. There is this, this is one account written by Al Jaziri of this guy, the Bani, who brings coffee from Ethiopia, where it still grows wild, actually, to the Yemen and discovers its properties, its uh, liveliness of the body. And this notion of helping Sufis in religious devotions, we find over and over and over again in these early texts. And it becomes an argument, actually, for why coffee should be licit in the Islamic tradition. Okay. There were all of these debates in the 16th century about whether or not coffee should be licit uh, in the tradition because it was seen to have a, a function that was not necessarily supportive of the social order, let's say. People would accuse those who went into the coffee shops of perhaps fomenting sedition or having some kind of social disorder? And were they reputable or disreputable? And what about the coffee property itself? Was it an intoxicant? The uh -huh. Islamic tradition doesn't approve of substances that take away from the idea of divine remembrance. So we have supporters like Al-Jaziri who writes this um, text and says, this is all about divine remembrance. Look at the fact that these this it was brought from Ethiopia by the Sufi. And look at this guy who's actually in charge of fatwas. You know, he's if this guy was in disrepute, really, you know, we would have to second guess this notion of, of whether or not coffee was licit in the tradition. So coffee, actually, in one of his arguments, he says, and I have to read this because this yeah, is go ahead. so, so good that he, um, it's so interesting. He says, well, actually, um, one of the reasons that coffee should be licit is the following. Among some of the virtuous people in Yemen, some of them have said that there is a correspondence between the name of coffee, al-Kahwa, and one of the most beautiful names of God, al-Kawi. The mention of al-Kawi's numerical value has prevented harm to he who has mentioned it or he who has faced it. The total numerical value of the letters in al-Kahwa is 116, as is the value of the letters of al-Kawi. Look at that. The correspondence comes from the correlation of the calculation of the numerical values of the letters, 116, with what is in the baraka of his name, Al-Kawi, in terms of warding away harm and the beneficial effects of its influence. 
So here, Jaziri says that the baraka or blessing is actually accorded to coffee through recognizing its relationship with a numerical correspondence between it and the name of God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And indeed, recognizing this numerical correspondence will help to ward away evil. So in the Islamic tradition, coffee's sanctity then becomes tied to Sufi orders. We even have textual evidence of people in Sufi zikrs or notions of divine remembrance passing around cups of coffee so that they'll just have a little swig during their remembrances. Huh. And, and what are remembrances? Oh, yes. So um, the Arabic term is called dhikr, and there are Sufi ceremonies that involve people getting together and chanting the name of God or using music to remember the divine. And there are 99 names of God in the Islamic tradition, and it's considered particularly meritorious to engage in these kind of supererogatory practices so that one can become closer to the divine. So the argument here is that if you are remembering the divine, it's considered meritorious. If you use coffee in helping to remember the divine, then there you go. If it's not an intoxicant and it will help in religious devotions. So for the remembrances, is it about memorization and being able to recite these things from, from memory, or is it simply about by saying the, these names, you're, you're remembering? Yes, by the latter. By saying okay. those names, you're remembering, yeah, or certain phrases, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was it ever, was coffee ever banned from the religious? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in its genesis of coming to the Yemen and to Egypt and to Mecca, it did become banned periodically and then unbanned. Uh -huh. So in 1511, there are attempts to prohibit coffee in Mecca. In 1525, a jurist orders Meccan coffee houses closed. In 1526, that same jurist dies, um, and then the houses reopen. Okay. <laughs> and, and a similar thing actually happens when coffee comes in to Europe. And that happens in the 17th century. So in, in, in thinking about these origins of coffee, another really powerful origin myth that we see all the time is this idea of the goat herder Kaldi. And the origin myth is something like this, that there was either Ethiopian or Yemeni goat herder named Kaldi. And he takes his goats out one day. And these goats go and they see a coffee shrub. And they start eating the beans from the coffee shrub. And then they get super excited. And Kaldi is like, well, what is going on here? And he says, I'm going to try some of these. So then he pops some of these beans. And then he gets really excited. And that's how he discovers coffee. One of the things that's really fascinating about the Kaldi story is that the Kaldi story, the first written account of it was by this guy, um, Faustus Nyren, who's writing in the 17th century. And he, he doesn't say that it is Kaldi, but he says that coffee is actually discovered by a Christian monk. Uh-huh. 
And so this notion of the Sufis become put by the wayside. Uh-huh. And so then this Christian monk then um, gives these beans to everybody in his monastery in order to stay awake for prayer, uh-huh. which mirrors this Sufi heritage of mm-hmm. coffee. And then he says that during their ceremonies, they give praise to the Turks for giving them this coffee, which is very huh. interesting. Okay, so was it given by the Turks or was it discovered by a Christian monk? Well, the, the history of this is <laughs> that it, it was domesticated and popularized by Muslims, though it is an Ethiopian beverage. It, you uh-huh. know, it still goes grows wild in Ethiopia. But it seems that so many people who discover coffee whether it's now or whether it's then, have a tendency to try and make it their own, Uh which becomes really, really interesting. So I'm interested in a lot of these stories that take coffee and then kind of appropriate its origins. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so is that a big part of what your project is about? Yeah, so I'm actually looking at the ways in which coffee's origins become the fancy, I guess, academic term, become re-signified. But I'm looking at the ways in which it's particularly tethered to ideas of Islam. So that's kind of the book, what what I'm looking Mm -hmm. at for the book. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jamel Velji about Islamic origins of coffee and how the history of coffee gets appropriated by different cultures. He talks about when coffee gets introduced into European culture as a luxury item from the East. And one example comes from a famous Italian traveler. There's this guy Pietro de la Valle, famous Italian traveler. He goes to the Levant, Syria, to Lebanon. And he says um, that, yeah, this is from uh, Pietro de la Valle's treatise. Parts of it become embedded within a famous 17th century treatise on coffee, coffee, Uh tea, and chocolate, by this guy named Dufour, Sylvester Dufour. And there's this idea about extolling the virtues of coffee, thinking that it provides serious leisure. Uh And at the same time, they never really tie it to Ottomans. And so he says... If they, the Italians, should drink it with wine as they do with water, it will be the Nepenthe, the Homer mentions, which Helen drunk there, it being certain that Kahwa is brought hither from that country. And as this Nepenthe was a charm against cares and vexations, the same Kahwa to this day is used among the Turks as an entertainment and pastime, making the hours to slip away merrily in conversations, intermingling with their drinks several, several pleasant and recreative discourses, which unawares on their mind this forgetfulness of sorrows, which the poet attributes to this Nepenthe. So there's this notion that it really is this substance of leisure that is not, that is an ancient substance of leisure that doesn't really come from Muslims. It happens to be just incidental to that area. And we should get our hands on it so that we can also provide this to our people. 
So it being seen as a luxury item and as this kind of carefree thing is really different than using it in a religious context as part of a remembrance or as part of staying awake during prayers or, you know, being sort of having the mind stimulated. It's sounding more like an intoxicant. Yes. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And this is when it's introduced to Europe. Uh, yes. This is um, 17th century. Okay. Um, and this is not to say that in Europe there were not debates about whether or not coffee was an intoxicant. Many uh, medical treatises in France were opposed to coffee. Some of them said, oh, this is going to give people paralysis and epilepsy and, and all of these things. And then there's this great legend about whether or not coffee should be listed in the uh, Christian tradition. And there's this great story about how the Pope, Pope Clement, I believe, is given a sample of coffee. He says, you know, let me see if this stuff is actually good uh -huh. or should be allowed. And he drinks the cup of coffee and he really likes it. And he says, this is something that we actually have to make part of our culture. I don't think it's going to cause sinfulness or anything. So uh -huh. that's one of the ways in which coffee becomes domesticated too in the Christian tradition. So it's, it's sanctioned, it's approved by the Catholic right. Church. Right, right. And there are stories too about how the Jews use it in 18th century to stay awake also during special ceremonies that are similar to kind of these nighttime remembrances in the Islamic tradition. Okay. So there's so many of these religious function stories that are intertwined with coffee. My guest is Jamel Velji. Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College in California. We'll be back after a short break with more from our conversation. Stay with us. Young, this is Earth Eats, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jamel Velji about his research into the Islamic origins of coffee. And one of the things he's looking at is the representation and the erasure of Islamic culture in the marketing of coffee in Europe and in the U.S. My favorite example of this is uh, there's a, a um, contemporary Viennese roaster named Julius Meinl. And Julius Meinl is a major purveyor of coffee in Europe. Julius Meinl's icon is this, they call it the Meinl Moor. It's this boy who has a fez on 
And the Meinl Moore was, according to them, devised in 19, I believe, 1924 in order to market coffee. And the Meinl Moore starts out as an icon that is more kind of, let's say, I don't know, Ottoman, Arab in nature, kind of vague Ottoman and Arab. He's drinking a cup of coffee and he's his face is dark. And over the course of history, he becomes less and less associated with that part of the world. And he becomes, as they describe it, like the Baroque angels that are found in Viennese, uh, in Austrian architecture. Huh. And there's this really interesting thing, I think, that happens that is emblematic of the ways in which coffee is still kind of associated with the exotic, but it also becomes part of the domestic landscape. Mm -hmm. However, yet Julius Meinl's iconography is all over their shops in Vienna. It's today today printed on everything from sugar packets to their cups. And so the Orient, or this vision of the Orient, is very much present still in coffee advertising. And this is not just Julius Meinl. In the 1860s, Hills Brothers and other major American Arbuckle coffee began using images of the Orient to sell coffee. Mm -hmm. These kind of timeless images of landscapes with reds and kind of deserty colors, as well as trading cards that would be inserted in different coffee packages that then these these cards would actually talk about oh this is Egypt it has pyramids and you know here is what an Egyptian looks like but these are kind of stylized visions of the orient that kind of illustrate this exoticism of the commodity and along with this exoticism of the commodity ironically the same time in which, in the same way in which one kind of portrays a Muslim figure, a figure that is from the Middle East or Ottoman or Turkey or, you know, some kind of the other, ironically, that representation can also result in a kind of effacement of individual communal identity through a stylized vision, right, right of looking at that icon and iconography. So even if the origins are being acknowledged, it's there's still an erasure because it's, like you said, stylizing or even stereotyping or putting some yeah, strange, totally. strange images with it that aren't necessarily acknowledging the history and the origins. Totally, totally. And, and even if we look at coffee advertising today, the number of times... You may read a description of the coffee that says exotic or that says like this comes from a particular terroir that is grown at a certain altitude. It has these flavor notes of this, 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 this. There's still this exoticism that is related to the ways in which even high end purveyors of coffee like um, counterculture or temple coffee or Starbucks even sell their coffees. There's still this exotic kind of 
idea that you're, the cup that you're drinking is from a faraway land and that you can still take part in being connected with this faraway land mm-hmm. by buying and drinking our coffee. It feels like you kind of have to do that today because there's such an emphasis and an interest in eating local and drinking local and having things that are coming from here. And since that's not really possible with coffee, we don't grow coffee in the United States. And I would think there's not much coffee grown in any European countries. And so you have to emphasize something else. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that it would go with the reason this is attractive is because it's exotic and because it's from a faraway land. And maybe it's now the value is placed on knowing who that farmer is or having it be a single origin is another thing that seems to be important is knowing this bean came from one place and it's all the same bean and it hasn't been blended and it's, you know, and we know who the farmer is and we've got a picture of him, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. I think it would be cool if we could also talk about some of these local myths that are associated with, you know, not just talk about like what the farmer and the single origin, mm-hmm. maybe stories about what, how coffee is improving these local farmers' uh-huh. conditions, mm-hmm. and to to give a kind of more composite picture of the ways in which coffee is actually connect is is operating more locally uh-huh in those places in those places yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one of the really interesting things that i came across when doing this project was uh discovering that the icon for colombian coffee is juan valdez who uh, who's this kind of ubiquitous figure associated with Colombian coffee that was actually devised by the Colombian Federation of Coffee Growers to help sell coffee in a kind of inversion of what we see with advertising like Julius Meinl Uh uh, to give a face and a place and an image that is controlled domestically. Mm by um, these coffee growers to to sell their coffee. Yeah. So do you feel like there's a time when, like when I think of where coffee comes from, mm-hmm. I don't think of the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. I think of Central or South America, and I think of some African countries. Yeah. And that's just me being pretty ignorant. But like that's what, and then I remember, okay, well, there's Arabica. Mm-hmm. So, but that's sort of, that's it. That's and I don't really I don't have that image connection. Yeah. When I started thinking about it, I, I can picture those those stylized images from past marketing yeah. of coffee, but not contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I don't uh, this I don't think it's you being ignorant. I think that um most people don't think about the Islamic origins of coffee. No. And I think that there are all of these other contributions made by Muslims to society that people don't think about either. I mean, the fountain pen or the hospital or like eye surgery or (laughs) fundamental components of our existence. And so the question really is, how is it that we don't see those as part of our 
everyday existence. And it's not just contributions of Muslims, it's it's contributions of all sorts of other peoples. Yeah. And, and, and there are many theorists who have written about why is it that the conditions of modernity seem to separate those elements? And what is it about the past that seems kind of distant and foreign to us? But I, what I'm hoping with this project is that we can envision something that makes us think about those origins of coffee in our coffee cup. And and I'm not alone in doing this. I mean, I think I'm one of the few who's doing an Islamic history of coffee, but but there are coffee companies like uh, Question Coffee, and the company is literally called Question Coffee, huh? and it's based in Rwanda in Kigali. And they are a very interesting company that advocates for women coffee farmers. And the idea here is to illustrate, well, not only is this can coffee farming be done by women, but we, there are also um, direct trade relationships that we have. And that, yeah, you should question your coffee. Uh-huh. You should question where it comes from. You should question how it's grown. You should question why um, that coffee is particularly good, but uh-huh. why why it, it tastes the way it tastes. Uh-huh. I guess I was just wondering if you thought in recent history or in recent American history, if that erasure of the Islamic origins or sources of coffee as fear of Muslims has increased in mm-hmm. the United States, like has there been more of that or is this something that was way before that? I think it's way before that. Yeah. I think it's been ongoing that Muslims have always been seen in this country as the other, mm-hmm. as foreign, and and it's not just Muslims, it's all sorts of other yes. <laughs> people in the history of the United States. But I think that the unique thing about coffee is that because it's still um, it still has this heritage. There's still this connection that can be stylized between it and perceptions of Muslims, mm-hmm. which just further exacerbates this whole otherness uh-huh. about Muslims. In wrapping up our conversation, I asked Jamel Velji, what's at stake? Why does this project matter, especially for coffee consumers? One of the things that I think is really important is to realize that it's not actually just about coffee. The project actually gets us to think more about the global place of Muslims more generally, or at least that's my goal. And we can look currently at Muslim discrimination across the world, and and I'm acutely aware that there's discrimination that occurs amongst all sorts of people globally right now. But if we were to look at the ways in which Muslims are persecuted in China, for instance, or we can look at the crisis among the Rohingya, or we can look at the ways in which uh, Muslims are discriminated against in the United States, less so in Canada, but it still exists. We can look in Europe at the migrant crisis Muslims are getting a particularly bad rap. And I think 
so much of this has to do with negative images mm -hmm. of Muslims. So part of this project looks at the history of this misrepresentation and then examines how is it that we can be more responsible in representing these stories and representing the people who are behind this, both the people who think about it as kind of coffee being a substance that's tethered to Sufi zikrs, but also how is it that we can think about this history of misrepresentation mm -hmm. among Muslims. Is there anything else you want to talk about or is there anything that in this research that you've been doing and in looking at this topic, is there anything that's really surprised you that you weren't expecting to come across? Yes. I've become really fascinated and I didn't know at how some of the earliest coffee houses in Britain and in France, 17th century, were places of emulation of the Orient. Huh. So one scholar, Brian Cohen, has written uh, a book on the, on the early British coffee house, and he describes these places. Uh, he says something, they're like something like 37 coffee houses in London called the Turk's Head by... Um, the end of the 17th century. And, and these places actually have baths in them. They are decorated opulently. And he says that these were places where people could actually experience consumer Orientalism. They huh. could go into these places and feel as though there was this luxurious ethos around them that was part of the Orient. Uh-huh. Uh, in, uh, and, and in another, that the first cafe in France, in Paris, Cafe Procope, the waiters would actually dress up as if they were from the Orient. They would dress up in this kind of Oriental garb. Huh. And there's still this legacy of Oriental type architecture in grand coffee houses in Europe. Even when coffee comes to France, there are accounts of the Sun King, Louis XIV, also kind of having coffee ceremonies in which uh -huh. he dresses up like somebody from the Orient. Huh. And so, uh, to me, this is really fascinating to see how these two worlds are connected, but then to see how now they are so entirely conceived of as separate. That was Jamel Valji, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. This, this was great. Oh, you know, good. I'm, this, this was fun. He spoke with us in the WFIU studios in November of 2018 when he was visiting the campus for a talk called Drinking the Orient, Meditations on Religion and Coffee, From the Yemen to San Francisco. Find more on our website, eartheats.org.
Earth Eats is a radio show and a podcast. And we also make videos featuring recipes from my home kitchen. Peyton Knobluk produces them with videographers Jacob Lindauer and Jacob Lindsay. The latest one features sweet potato fries prepared in an air fryer and served with a spiced yogurt dip. We've got recipes savory and sweet, stovetop and baked. And one of my favorites is a cinnamon pecan filled Bosque pear cloaked in a flaky pastry, baked until golden and served with a honey lemon chamomile sauce. You'll find all of our recipe videos when you search for Earth Eats on YouTube, where you can like and subscribe. Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Jamel Velji. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.